0: Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, March 6th,
1: 2014.
0: All right, let's see here, (laughs) kind of figure a couple of things out. Yep, I'm going to go with that story. Okay, yep, making last-second changes as we speak. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said and done out there in the name of God. And got to tell you, it's really, really discouraging um, that the usual cast of characters continues to be the usual cast of characters. And uh, what they're doing is, uh, it's not good. Let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. There's there's a lot of ground that I need to cover and kind of everything themes in together here. Um, we're going to need to spend some time with a Mark Driscoll update today. We've got a Stephen Furtick update today. We've got a Joel Osteen update, update today. And we also have a, a sermon review of um, David from David Hughes of uh, Church by the Glades out there in uh, Florida. That's just to kind of... You know, that's the thirty thousand uh, foot flyover, if you would. And uh, if you've been on social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter, there's some pretty big stories that have hit the uh, social media and some of the big uh, news sites uh, regarding Mark Driscoll. So I'm going to kind of do this backwards today. This is not the order we're going to work from today, but I you know I just want to talk about this. Um, n- there is another Mark Driscoll brouhaha and it really can you know everything that keeps happening regarding mark driscoll um is it shows that there are major major problems with mark driscoll last year we had you know you know at the end of the year we had the big month long uh, issue regarding plagiarism and and you know and showing up in book after book after book written by Mark Driscoll and then you finally finally before Christmas right before Christmas we got some kind of acknowledgement that uh, that mistakes were made and in the meantime uh, Mark Driscoll's publishers have been quietly going back through his books and all of a sudden there's citations citing people and. Things like that, so they're kind of cleaning up their act, and um, and and you know, and then the story hit over at uh, Went at you the Hatchet, um, you know, as well as uh, Warren Throckmorton's uh, blog, uh, that uh, the folks there at uh, Mars Hill have been engaging in uh, historical revisionism. Um, you know, basically, now when they tell the story of Mars Hill and how it was planted, it's as if, well, Mark Driscoll was the only pastor planting Mars Hill, and he wasn't. Uh, there was Leif Moy that was involved and, you know, the, and so other things, but they've, they've um, <clears throat> mysteriously disappeared from the historical annals of uh, Mars Hill lore and history, if you would. Uh, but that's small compared to the big story that's hit. Um, Documents have been uncovered that show that uh, Mark Driscoll's book, Real Marriage, um, that uh, the folks at Mars Hill paid at least – get this number – $210,000 to a a company uh, in order for it – for uh, the book Real Marriage to become a New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. $210,000. $1,000 $1,000 uh, being spent. And uh, and so you know we're going to take a look at that story from uh, World Magazine. Uh, Warren Cole Smith uh, had it published yesterday afternoon. We're going to take a look at that as well as uh, take a look at uh, Warren Th- uh, Throckmorton's website and look at the details uh, of the contract. The, uh, the signed contract itself has surfaced, and copies of it are now um, available for people to read on the Internet. And the details of this scheme are unbelievable. Um, but then I'll let uh, uh, Jared, um, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, uh, Jared Wilson of the Gospel Coalition have the last word regarding uh, that. And I'll be reading from his blog post entitled, What's Wrong with Buying Your Way Onto the Best Seller List? What's Wrong with Buying Your Way Onto the Best Seller List? So, you know, there, we've got an extended Mark Driscoll update, but we're going to start with the Joel Osteen update. And uh, take a look at his recent uh, message entitled, You Are Not Damaged Goods. You Are Not Damaged Goods. And I want to talk about how, even though this sounds like a positive, feel-good kind of message, this is an extremely damaging, damaging, I mean like eternal damaging kind of message that we're hearing uh, from Joel Osteen. And then I also want to uh, address Stephen Furtick's comments regarding – uh, the the uh, media story about manipulated baptisms. Now, last year, I, not last year, last week, man, I'm losing my mind here. Last week, um, we uh, spent a little bit of time working our way through uh, a, a sermon that was uh, preached by um, uh, by Stephen Furtick entitled, It Will Happen. And we noted his narcissistic eisegesis, Narcissus for short, uh, of the uh, story of you know, from, that's found in Acts chapter 27 and 28. Now, what I didn't do last week, because I wanted the two things to be separate, uh, what I didn't do last week was address the comments made by uh, Stephen Furtick in that sermon where he talked about uh, you know the his critics in the media regarding manipulated baptisms, okay. Um, I've since been on the Issues Etc. radio program addressing this, but I want to spend some time on my own program addressing what he said. And the reason I didn't do it last week is because I wanted the narcissistic eisegesis to stand alone as an issue and then circle back and then come back and address what he said. So that that was the idea. I wanted to split it up because if I I tried to cover both issues in the same segment, in my mind it would have muddied – what I what it was I was trying to do in that particular episode of Fighting for the Faith. I you know I want what he said to stand alone as opposed to uh, you know how he twists the Bible. I also wanted that to stand alone. I didn't want the two to be uh, confused with each other because oftentimes when you try to cover two different you know major topics in on a, a radio segment, uh, the stronger one will be the one that everybody remembers as opposed to uh, you know the weaker one that gets kind of you know pushed in people's in the back of people's mind. Because here's the deal. However, Stephen Furtick tries to defend what he did, which, by the way, is was no defense, and you'll, uh, I'll explain that when we get there. The big, the bigger issue with Stephen Furtick is that he is a seriously dangerous twister of God's word. The man unconscionably mangles God's word and makes it about him. And what he does—that's what makes him dangerous, because that's what sends people to hell false doctrine false gospels false jesus false message all of that stuff that is deadly 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 stuff and that's the thing that uh, you know we try to focus on here at fighting for the faith on a, on you know almost on a daily basis you know although there are actually episodes we don't quite cover it in you know it, that it, you know straight up like that The manipulated baptism issue, I think, is a symptom of the bad teaching and the false ecclesiology there. And I, you know, and I, even though it, that's the thing that people go, hmm, there's something wrong there. What it bugs me that, you know, the manipulated spontaneous baptisms is the big story in Christianity as opposed to his false doctrine. It really should be the other way around. It really should be. But, uh, you know, I'll continue to endeavor to slog through my career and pray for that end where false teachers are not tolerated uh, in Christchurch, church, which the Bible tells us they shouldn't be. But in the meantime, rather than crying about the way things are, I'm going to continue to work towards making changes, if you know what I mean. And uh, and then the, uh, the other thing that we're going to do today in hour number two is we're going to be reviewing a sermon um, by... Uh, <laughs> David Hughes of Church by the Glades from the recently concluded uh, sermon series entitled "Improve Your Selfie," and um, the the name of the sermon is "Your Potential Is Too Great to Miss." Your potential. Is too great to miss, and, and believe me when I tell you, all of this stuff actually works together with a theme that I put together, but I will not, you know, just, just you know, unless I tell you they, that an episode of Fighting for the Faith doesn't have a theme, it actually has a theme, and, uh, you know, sometimes I actually state it out loud, and, and sometimes I accidentally state, state it even though I didn't want to, but... <clears throat> Hopefully, the astute listener will be able to figure. Out, okay, this is what Chris is really kind of grinding on, right? That's kind of the idea. Okay, so we have got, in yeah, you know, just a ton of ground to cover today, and we're going to start with our Joel Osteen update, which requires me to do this. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be,
2: all by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw My shiny teeth and me
1: My shiny teeth that twinkle Just like the stars in space My shiny teeth that sparkle Adding beauty to my face My shiny teeth that glisten Just like a Christmas tree You know they walk a mile just to see me smile Woo!
0: shiny teeth and me all right yeah that's right that's chip skylark and uh, shiny teeth and me our joel osteen update music okay the name of the message that we're going to be listening to by joel osteen is entitled you are not damaged goods and you know for lack of a better way of putting it this is a flat-out denial of the doctrine of original sin and that is dangerous It's so dangerous that the denial of the doctrine of original sin actually has a name. And the name for that heresy is known as Pelagianism. Pelagianism, that's right. Pelagianism denies that you are born dead in trespasses and sins. Um, Pelagianism basically believes that there is something good within you, okay? Uh, Something good that is capable of, uh, of doing good apart, really kind of apart from God. And, you know, in fact, if you go through the... Uh, archives of Fighting for the Faith. Go to the Archives of Fighting for the Faith. Um, we presented, you know, a while back ago now, a series of lectures by Phil Johnson. And Phil Johnson walked through the ancient heresies of uh, of the Christian church. And Pelagianism was one of them. And you might want to go back and find it. In fact, what I might do, and you know, I, I should do this, I'll do this. I'm going to actually link to that episode of Fighting for the Faith in, with today's episode. So if you find the... Uh, thursday march 6th episode of fighting for the faith for the year 2014 i'll put a link there and kind of additional resources underneath the, uh, the the program description for today but uh... you listen very carefully to joel osteen as he talks about the fact that you are not damaged goods here we go well
3: god bless you it's always a joy to come into your homes and if you're ever in our area please stop by and be a part of one of our services I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you again for coming out. i like to start with something funny. and I heard about this group of school children. They were in the cafeteria line at their Catholic elementary school. At the first of the line, there was a big bowl of apples. A nun had written a note, Take only one, God is watching. At the end of the line, there was a big bowl of chocolate chip cookies. One of the children had written a note, Take all you want. God is watching the apples. (laughs) Hold up your Bible and say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about how you are not damaged goods. I was in a grocery store, and down one of the aisles, there was a whole section called damaged goods. It was mostly canned products. Now, notice here
0: that Joe Osteen does not begin with an open Bible. He begins with a story about his trip to the grocery store, and he found a section in the grocery store called damaged goods. Well, is the damaged goods aisle of the grocery store the place where we're supposed to get our Christian doctrine from?
3: That had been marked down because of some kind of flaw. The can was dented, the label was torn, the color was off. The store couldn't sell it for the full price because they had an imperfection. They were considered less valuable, inferior damaged goods. What's interesting is if you bought one of those cans... You opened it up. Can of corn, can of peas, can of peaches. You'd find there's nothing wrong with the inside. The can may have been dented, but it didn't affect the contents. The label may have been torn. On the outside, it wasn't perfect. But on the inside, where it matters, there was no difference. The damaged goods peaches that were sold for half price tasted just as good as the peaches that were sold for full price. The corn, the peas... May have been labeled inferior, less than, but that's all it was. Just- now,
0: as far as I'm concerned, this is great advice to know if you're looking for a way to save money. Um, you know, maybe you're on a tight budget, maybe you uh, live and uh, breathe on a ministry budget like myself, and you're looking for a way to pinch some pennies. Oh, this is some great advice. You know how you can pinch some pennies? Buy food on the damaged goods aisle. Hmm. I mean, you can get, according to Joel here, you can, you can save half off by buying completely good food with a damaged container. I See, I knew Joel Osteen was good for something. The problem is is that he's supposedly preaching a sermon that's teaching us something about what we as Christians should believe, teach, and confess. I don't recall the damaged goods section of Scripture. It's the label.
3: It's the same principle in life. All of us, in some way, have been damaged. You can't live very long without making a mistake, being hurt by someone, going through a breakup, damaged by a divorce.
0: <clears throat> um, the, you know, the, the Bible actually uh, doesn't call those mistakes. The Bible calls those sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and see, you got to understand something here. Sin doesn't... Quote unquote, damage you. At least, well, it does. But that's not the reason why you sin. You sin because you are damaged. And let me put it to you another way the reason why we sin is because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. Mm -hmm. Sin, first and foremost, is for every one of us, uh, with the exception of Adam and Eve, uh, when they were first created. Sin, for all of us who are descendants of Adam and Eve, is a condition first. Mm -hmm. We inherit sin from Adam and Eve. We are born, according to Scripture, dead in trespasses and sins. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And as for you, you, you Christians in Ephesus... You were, were, okay, Uh, before you were Christians, you were dead in trespasses, in sins, and in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. huh? So scripture makes it very clear that um, you were born, um, not just damaged good w- goods as far as like a cosmetic flaw on the outside of you. No, you were dead in trespasses and sins. It's out of the heart that comes all kinds of sin, right? Sin has its origin from within inside of us. And so, what Jolocean is doing here is very dangerous. And the reason why it's very dangerous is because this is what's called a spiritual misdiagnosis. And you know, in the um, medical world, you know, if you were to go to the doctor and you were to complain to the doctor and say, you know, I've got I've got these horrible symptoms. I've got this really bad pain in my back and this whole terrible feeling of malaise and and something isn't right. I just know it and you know and things are are not exactly going well. And and the doctor says, Oh well you probably have a flu. And so here take some aspirin and go get some bed rest and 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 call me back in the morning. And you know so you call him back in the morning I'm not feeling in fact I'm feeling worse here. And so the doctor says, all right, let's run some tests. And so they run the tests and the tests actually show okay no joke the tests actually show that you are suffering from stage 3 multiple myeloma cancer and it's it and it's it's you know and you're in actually the reason why your back hurts is because you're in kidney failure okay and the doctor takes a look at the diagnosis and says yeah you know um you, you you're probably just exhausted you know you, you you probably are working too hard you know to take a week off of work and and uh, and things like that now you, you you know and you go oh okay no problem but see the results say that you got you have cancer and the doctor doesn't tell you that you have cancer okay that is criminal okay that is like lose your license criminal right so the person goes home thinking, oh, well, the doctor told me I'm okay. We took tests, and the, and the tests apparently said that everything was all right, but the tests didn't say everything was okay. What happens to that person then? That person then, while well, they're in kidney failure, they're going to find themselves in the hospital, maybe even getting close to death as a result of the fact that the doctor didn't tell them the truth about their condition. Okay, So here's the deal. This is what Scripture says. And Scripture has come back. It's run the whole battery of tests. And the tests have come back. You have tested positive for a fatal condition. And the fatal condition is sin. You are by nature a sinner. Now, it's this is a terrible, terrible illness. This is a disease. This is the disease of diseases. In fact, it's the root of all of them. and 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 unfortunately... The wages of sin is death and the and death, we're not just talking about, you know, physical death here. Okay. We're talking about eternal death. Okay. What the, the book of Revelation calls the second death. There's two deaths that go along with this. With the first death is physical, the second death is you being thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. I mean, this condition is really, really dangerous. And there is only one one cure for this and 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 i'm i'm gonna tell you it's there's nothing there's no self improvement there's no good works that you can perform there's not um you can't even if you sold everything you had and gave it to the poor it couldn't solve your problem yeah no there's i mean there is not a single that good work that you can offer or even a collective group works uh, of of good works that you can offer you can't offer money to solve and cure this problem okay um, and this disease, by the way, is the result of a snake bite. Yeah, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the serpent. Okay, Think of it as, as a disease that has infected the human race since a snake bite occurred in the Garden of Eden. You know, And, of course, I'm talking kind of allegorically here you know, metaphorically as, as a snake bite, but that's what we're talking about here. The solution, the forgiveness of your sins. That's right. Uh, Christ actually had to bleed and die for all of them, so that you wouldn't pay, face the just penalty for your sin. So, the solution's this: you you need to come to grips and just deal with reality. You are a sinner. Straight up, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. We're all infected by the snake bite. The condition is fatal, and it's fatal in an eternal sense. So repent and believe the good news that Christ has bled and died for you. That's right. You are ultimately damaged goods. Now, because Joel Osteen here, he's supposedly a Christian pastor, he has access to the test results just as much as I do. And he's chosen to ignore the test results found in Scripture that say the condition's fatal. You are a sinner. You are damaged goods. You were born dead in trespasses and sins, and you were by nature an object of God's wrath. Okay. He's chosen to ignore that. And he's, this is a criminal misdiagnosis that we're hearing here. We
3: continue. Damaged by an unhealthy childhood. Damaged by an addiction. Too many people go around wearing the damaged goods label, feeling washed up less than, focused on their mistakes, focused on what they've been through. No, you've got to get out of that section. That's not where you belong. You may have been dented on the outside, but like those cans, there's nothing wrong with the inside.
0: Oh, man. I mean, this is a lie from the pit of hell. Straight up.
3: That setback did not affect your DNA. That loss, that disappointment didn't change who you are. That mistake, the failure, the weakness, didn't stop your destiny. You may have been bruised on the outside, but on the inside, you still have the blood of a winner.
0: You still have, still have the blood of a winner. Oh, man. Yeah, Um, no, actually, on the inside, I've got a corrupted, blown-out, sinful nature that I've inherited from Adam and Eve. Yeah,
3: I don't have the blood of a winner. I have the blood of a sinner. This is what Scripture says. The DNA of Almighty God. You've been crowned with favor. You are full of potential, talent, creativity, wisdom. Full of
0: potential, yeah. Potential for evil, apart from Christ. There is nothing
3: wrong with your contents. Nothing, huh? Nothing at all, huh? Listen, people can't keep you from your destiny.
0: Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, wow, that's going to comfort me there. People can't keep me from my destiny. But the problem is because you're lying to people here and not telling them the truth about their condition. Their destiny
3: is hell. Bad breaks can't stop you. Weaknesses can't stop you. The only thing that can really stop you is you. If you wear the damaged goods label, it can keep you from becoming all God's created you to be.
0: And yet, 1 John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's right. You won't want to be forgiven until you understand you're a sinner. And that means coming to grips with the fact that you are damaged goods. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break when we come back, Stephen Verdict update, as well as a Mark Driscoll update. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back.
4: Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
5: Oh, I do wish these planes would give us passengers more leg room. Ooh. Hey, let me
0: help you with your luggage.
5: Oh, thank you so much. Oh, what in the world do you have
2: in these bags? Bricks. Bricks? I'm a daughter-in-law-brick I'm
5: not even going to ask.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you have not already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts, and make sure that your seatback and tray tables are in their full upright and locked positions. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh, dear. He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. Uh, I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight. Which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant.
0: We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy.
5: I'll uh, to a direct revelation that I just had from God. We are no longer heading to Boston. Rather, we are now heading to New Jersey. <gasps> but my ticket says Boston! As I've said before, please trust your pilot or you'll be forcibly removed from the plane.
6: Who on earth would want to go to New Jersey anyway?
5: That's it! God, please escort this man to the back of the plane for violent ejection. Hey! I have my rights! You can't do this to people! Oh, but I can. <laughs> believe that just happened.
0: There's something seriously wrong with all of this.
5: Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not
0: be alarmed.
5: You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions
0: or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. Beep.
5: And it is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <gasps> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close.
0: Pay more for travel than you need to. back. Warning, any Christian pastor who basically tells you you're really a good person and it's you just need to find the greatness inside of you is teaching heresy and not telling you the truth that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95, that's it, every month to the ongoing work of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you You can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Now, I want to tell you about an upcoming event. In fact, I'm going to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's official first conference. That's right. We're finally going to have a PCR conference and it's going to be in Clinton, Iowa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going Clinton, Iowa. Yes, it is. Okay. And um, our 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 first conference is entitled "Shalom and the Means of Grace." Shalom being the Hebrew word for peace. So think of it as like peace and the means of grace. And it's going. Uh, our speakers include myself, Pastor Daniel Emery Price, Pastor Jordan Cooper, and Pastor Curtis Lyons. And uh, we are really looking forward to this event. It's going to be held August 14th and 15th at St. John's Lutheran Church in Clinton, Iowa. And you can get more information as well as register for the event at pcrconference.com. That's pcrconference.com. And the, the cost is forty nine ninety five. That's it, 49 $49.95. And you can get information about hotels and stuff uh, right there on the website. Uh, on the website so Hopefully, if you are available August 14th and 15th uh, to uh, travel to Clinton, Iowa, that's a Thursday and a Friday, the 14th and 15th, it'll give an opportunity for you to uh, meet myself, talk with Pastor Jordan Cooper, meet Curtis Lyons, Pastor Daniel Emory Price, one of our sections, we're going to do a roundtable discussion, and uh, we're going to be basically straight up giving uh, sound Lutheran, and and, I would equate equate that with biblical, uh, really a critique and look at much of what's going on in evangelicalism and talk about, really, um, how because what's happening in today's uh, evangelicalism has lost sight of where it is that we can find true peace, Um, you know, what they're not actually doing is giving Christians peace. So, yeah, it's kind of a... Anyway, so again, pcrconference.com and I'll go ahead and hang the uh, hang you put the link information for the conference over at Fighting for the Faith hopefully uh, tonight uh tomorrow at the latest. So, I'll let you know about that. Now, I also will be speaking uh the first part of April, uh, about a month from now in uh, Seward, Nebraska at and uh, I'll give you more details about that shortly, but it's it's like the first uh Saturday uh, first Saturday and Sunday of, uh, of of April, I will be uh, lecturing in Seward, Nebraska, on um, the uh, on the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know, Lutherans actually believe the Holy Spirit does something, believe it or not. And uh, so we're gonna I'm gonna actually be lecturing uh, Saturday and then uh, and then giving a lesson on Sunday. So you know and I'll give you the details about that probably next week but if you're interested in and in, and going you know and you, you can be near Seward Nebraska uh you know the first Saturday Sunday of uh, April Uh, Stay tuned. I'll get you information about that shortly. So now we've got a lot of ground to cover for the remainder of the first hour. Just just a warning, the remainder of the first hour is going to run long because of what we need to cover. But I I want to push this all into one episode, so I don't want to break it up. So uh, we need to do a Stephen Furtick update, which requires us to do this.
1: About you, you're, you're so vain. But you think the Bible's about you, don't you? Don't you? Fool me several years ago when I was just a baby sheep. Well, you told me we were made to serve, and my time was all you need. But you. gospel heard the real gospel and you're so vain you probably think the Bible's about you you're so vain
0: I bet you think the Bible's about you don't you don't you all right so uh, Stephen Furtick has officially gone on the attack he's Fed up and very upset about the fact that he's got critics who are accusing him of manipulating baptisms. How dare those haters do that? Um, yeah, so let me go ahead and kill the music here. And what we're going to be listening to is the last part of um, the um, <clears throat> sermon that we reviewed in part last week entitled It Will Happen. And like I said, uh, the reason I broke this in two because I wanted to handle each of them at the, basically as their own issue. And this is the tail end where uh, this, Stephen Furtick is preaching on Acts chapter 28 where Paul gets bitten by a snake. And he's now going to address his critics in here. And you need to hear what he says because he's, he's fed up with those people that are, how dare they, how dare they, you know, attack him and and talk about the baptisms being manipulated and stuff. So without any further ado, here's Stephen Furtick. Let's
4: talk about shake the snake and feed the fire. Shake the snake. You got to learn how to shake the snake and feed the fire. See, Paul doesn't get bit by the snake and and, and scream. He doesn't get bit by the snake and stand there in a state of shock, (laughs) Paul looks at the snake and he says, oh, this too? (laughs) And I'm asking myself, how did he have the presence of mine? Because I'm scared of snakes. How many of y'all are scared of snakes? Okay, turn to the person next to you who doesn't have their hand up and say, how does it feel to be stupid? Um, (laughs) Snakes are scared. So, so, if the snake bites me, I don't have the presence. But, But Paul... He knew something. He knew something. He he had something. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God didn't bring me through that shipwreck to let me die from this snake bite.
0: So I know what to do. Actually, Paul had a direct revelation from Christ, and he's an apostle, which means you can expect something like that for an apostle, that no one would die. So he had nothing to worry about when the snake bit him. You you get what I'm saying here?
4: Now I'm using this as a metaphor. I'm saying that there are snakes that will attack your thinking. There are snakes that will attack your faith. Notice that God didn't let Paul step on the snake's head.
0: So we're just talking about metaphorical snakes now, not real snakes. That's how we want it. Show me the
4: fear and I'll crush it. God says, no, got to let it bite you. Because I got to prove to everybody around you that I can let the fear bite you and even try to attach itself to you. But you know what to do when the snake starts biting. I want to teach you to shake that snake. Shake that word. Shake that. That truck, shake that problem, shake that bad report, shake that test result, shake, shake, shake three people
0: around you, say, shake that snake. Shake, shake it, shake it, shake it. Sounds like an angry, edgy Joel Osteen. (laughs) One more thing. I can't leave this alone. It said not only
4: did he shake the snake, but he shook it back in the same fire that made it come out to begin with. now I'm thinking about 2 Timothy 1 verses 6 and 7. Paul was preaching to Timothy when Timothy was under fire. And Timothy was facing some real hardship. And he said, Timothy, I want to remind you now, here it is, to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, shake it off. Or timidity, shake it off. What are they going to think about me? Shake it off. What if it doesn't work out? God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but what? Of power and love and self-discipline. There's so much power in you that you can get bit and still not be stopped. That's when the people in your life will know there is a God. Take back into the same fire. Man, when they started talking this week on the news about our baptisms, oh, I got hot. Yes, sir. I got hot. They were saying that we manipulate our baptisms, that we have people planted in the audience who pretend to go be baptized. For the record, we have never planted anybody In our church to pretend to be baptized.
0: I am too scared of God to do something like that. Now, we got to be real careful here. Let's make something really clear. You got to parse his words. He says, We never planted anyone in the audience to pretend to be baptized. He did not say, We never planted people in the audience. That's the important part here. Now, let me read to you from the Elevation Church's how-to manual on how to do spontaneous baptisms, which, by the way, you can download from the Sun Standstill Still website. It's still available, okay? It's a Word document, and I have it highlighted here in my copy of Microsoft Word. And here's what it talks about here um, about what to do, Okay. Fifteen people will sit in the worship experience and will be the first ones to move when Pastor gives the call. Number one, sit in the auditorium and uh, begin moving forward when Pastor Stephen says, go. Move intentionally through the highest visibility areas and the longest walk. Okay, that's straight out of the, of the spontaneous baptism's how-to guide. So, Furtick here basically said, we never planted anybody in the audience to pretend to be baptized. That's a very important distinction. Well, okay, good. I'm glad your plants, because you did plant them, weren't going to pretend to to be baptized. But he did not say, We've never planted anyone in the audience. It's gotta be you gotta you gotta parse him here like you would Bill Clinton. Let's continue. Please, please.
4: Now, Hey. Hey. It's one thing. It's one thing. Listen. If you, if you want to pick on my house, okay. Okay. But it's, it's different territory when you start picking on people who made a decision to be
0: baptized for Jesus Christ. Um, actually, nobody's picking on them. Nobody. Everybody who's covered the story is saying that they were manipulated into making the decision to be baptized because you created an environment, including volunteers who were strategically planted in the audience, who, when you gave the word go, got up and started walking. Okay, it was the, the accusation has never been against the baptized. It's about the person who's manipulating them to make that decision. and to take the fact that we
4: have volunteers who get up and lead the way so people know where to go and to act as if they were pretending to be
0: baptized. Ah, did you catch that to to say that we, uh, to complain about the fact that we have volunteers who are willing to lead the way. <clears throat> again, the whole point is that you seated the audience and according again from the elevation church's spontaneous baptism how to guide 15 people you can say volunteers here, because that's how he's referring to them, will sit in the worship experience and be the first ones to move when Pastor gives the call. Sit in the auditorium and begin moving forward when Pastor Stephen says go. Move intentionally. Walk through the highest visibility areas and the longest walk. The point is that those volunteers, by based upon what they were told to do, made it look like, because this goes in tandem with the message, you know, if you want to be baptized, get up and go now, and they got up at your command, that... Um That when you gave the command to get up to go and be baptized, these are the first people up, and they're walking through the audience and walking intentionally. They're not wearing anything on their body that indicates that they're volunteers who are working for Elevation Church. They're not wearing T-shirts that say they're staff members or there to help out. All you've done here is clarified and said, okay, they're not really going down there and being baptized again or pretending to be baptized, but they're still moving intentionally through the audience as if they're making the decision to be baptized. You, you see, this is really, really, well, to use the metaphor that he's been <clears throat> employing today, very snaky on his part. We continue. And to negate the sincere faith decision of precious people
4: who had one of the most meaningful experiences of their life, that's just sick. That's sick. And... At the same time, I know that this is not the last thing that's going to be said about us unless we put the fire out. Unless we just stop growing. You don't baptize anybody, they won't talk about how you did it. And next time it won't be baptism. We already know that the local media, some of the people are planning other stories. We already know. And so here goes. My friend called me this week. He's been in ministry longer than I've been alive. And he was mad. And he says some non-preacher words. (laughs) And then he said, he said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I said, I don't know, because all throughout all of the media attention, I've been been saying, I'm not going to go up there and defend myself. I'm not going to go up there and defend myself. I'm not going to turn this pulpit into a press conference.
0: And yet that's exactly what he's doing right now. Weird, huh? That's not what this pulpit is for. Really.
4: I said, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't be defensive. And when I hung up the phone with him, I felt like God said, then don't play
0: defense. Play offense. No, 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 no. Notice this. Direct revelation from God Lord, Ding, 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 ding. God told him, "Well, oh, then don't play defense. Play offense. Oh, so he's got a direct revelation from God now.
4: I thought about it for a minute. And Holly was waiting on me. We were going out to eat for my birthday. Oh, it was a real happy birthday. I'm glad you think it's funny. (laughs) And um, God said, shake it back off into the same fire.
0: So God directly told you to basically go with your twisted misreading of Acts 28 and the application from your misreading and narcissistic eisegesis of Acts 28. God's completely on your side in the way you've twisted that Bible passage. And God's now telling you, Hey, you know, here's the application. Shake the snake, dude. Feed, Feed the fire. Yeah. Feed the fire. Shake the snake.
4: So tonight we're going to have a special baptism service at Elevation Church.
0: Yeah, so there you go. That was uh, Stephen Furtick's official response. And, you know, of course, I wanted to play it for you and then chime in accordingly. But the fact remains that the spontaneous baptism guide and the techniques used by Stephen Furtick is manipulation. They plant people in the audience and when pastor says go come and be baptized people spring up and now they and they are sitting throughout the auditorium moving intentionally in the highest visibility areas with the longest walks now they're not going to actually pretend to be baptized you know, maybe they're, they, they peel off and don't go be baptized a second time or whatever, but the point is is that the way they're moving and, and stuff like that is making it look like they are on the spot making a decision to be baptized, although they're not being baptized. So his clarification was very helpful because he affirmed that they got people planted in the audience, and he can't deny what their document tells them. The issue is he's manipulated these people into making that decision. All right, moving along. Again, we're running really long in this first hour today. It's more like an hour and a half. Time for a Mark Driscoll update.
2: Down the street, don't hear God's word no more. The pastor says we don't feed no sheep, so get busy and amuse those goats. Don't be lazy. He had to satisfy the leader's God-given vision supreme. If you dare to question him, well there'd certainly be a scene. Look out! Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. He's gonna get you too. Another one's off the bus One by one people disappeared Never to be seen again I thought this whole darn thing was a joke But I changed my mind when Saw the pastor jump on the bus Tear out screeching down the street People were getting squashed like bugs And piled up like dead meat Look out Another one's off the bus Another one's off the bus And another one's off And another one's off Another one's off the bus Hey, they don't care about you Another one's off the bus
5: I am all about blessed subtraction
4: There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus <laughs> And by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. They got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. They got to get thrown off because <laughs> they want to go somewhere else. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done, um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. The
1: pile behind Mark church grew higher by
2: the day. Some truly tried to follow his plan and they were thrown under anyway. Well, his vision was not complete. He was enraged by. I told Mark to stop playing God and now I'm under the bus. Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off. And another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, he's gonna throw you too. Another one's off the bus.
0: That's right, another one's off the bus. Our tribute song and update music for Mark Driscoll. Statements he has yet to publicly repent of, by the way. The Bible doesn't teach this is what the pastor should be doing to any of the sheep in his congregation. Yeah, in other words, just to kind of put it simply, is um, church discipline does not include the sin of challenging or questioning the vision of the pastor. just want to make that clear. Okay, so uh, from World Magazine, Warren Cole Smith uh, has a headline t- entitled, Unreal Sales for Mark Driscoll's Real Marriage. Seattle's Mars Hill Church paid a California-based marketing company at least $210. in 2011 and 2012 to ensure that Real Marriage, a book written by Mark Driscoll, the church's founding pastor and his wife, Grace, made the New York Times bestseller list. According to a document obtained by World Results Source Inc., or RSI, Contracted with Mars Hill to conduct a bestseller campaign for your book *Real Marriage* on the week of January 2nd, 2012. The bestseller campaign is intended to place *Real Mas- Marriage* on the New York Times bestseller list for the uh, for the advice how-to list. The marketing company also promised to help place *Real Marriage* on the Wall Street Journal, Business, USA Today, Money. BarnesandNoble.com and Amazon.com bestseller lists. Matt Miller of Results Source uh, and John Sutton of, Tur- of uh, John Sutton Turner of Mars Hill signed the letter of agreement dated October thirteenth, twenty eleven. Turner was then and remains today the church's executive pastor and an executive elder. Repeated phone calls to Results Source by World uh, went unreturned when World contacted Mars Hill about its relationship with Results Source. Church spokesman Dustin Dean responded via email saying, Mars Hill has made marketing investments for book releases and sermon series along with album releases, events, and church plants, much like many other churches, authors, and publishers who want to reach a large audience. We will explore any opportunity that helps us get that message out while striving to remain above reproach in the process. Whether we're talking about technology, music, marketing, or whatever, we want to tell lots of people about Jesus by every means available. That's what we're all about and have been since 1996. Yeah, um, here's the problem: is that paying a mar- uh, paying somebody like Re- Result Source Incorporated RSI um, to get you on the be- Times best, the New York Times bestseller list. That's not marketing. That's because think of it this way: the New York Times bestseller list is supposed to be a gauge of what books people are purchasing and buying, and what they did is manipulate the system. Let me read to you from the uh, the document itself that was signed, uh, the uh, contract that was signed be- between RSI and Mars Hill Church, dated October thirteenth, twenty eleven. This letter will confirm your engagement with Result Source Inc. RSA to conduct a bestseller campaign for your book Real Marriage on the week of January second, twenty twelve. The best seller campaign is intended to place Real Marriage on the New York Times bestseller list. For the advice how-to lists, additionally RSI will work to put Real Marriage on the Wall Street Journal business uh, bestseller list and on USA Today Money list via uh, BarnesandNoble.com and Amazon. And here's how we will do it: the process of the bestseller campaign includes the following: negotiating the purchase price, shipping, and fulfillment price with retailers; preparing the purchases of Real Marriage. By coordinating the orders with your team, RSI will create shared Google Docs to confirm the orders and amend with tracking numbers. All the shipments will be executed the week of the book's publication date. Individual and bulk orders take approximately 7 to 10 days or sooner in the case of Amazon. Tracking numbers will be supplied 5 business days from publication date inside the Google Docs. Uh, Coordinate the purchase of individual and bulk quantities of real Marriage over the course of one week to ensure maximum reporting to the best seller list. RSI will use its own payment systems. Uh, Note the large obstacle to the reporting system is the tracking of credit cards. RSA uses over a thousand different payment types credit cards, gift cards, etc. RSI will be purchasing at least 11,000 total orders in one week. This will include at least 6,000 individual orders. It is imperative that all individual order orders be notified that their book will be delivered by a third party. Uh, the names addresses will be supplied to RSA at least two weeks before publish, uh, the publishing date. All bulk order shipments require name, address, and phone number for shipper to coordinate uh, delivery. RSI will uh, handle bulk purchases in the following manner, and they go on to explain it. So, I mean, this is a pretty elaborate scheme, and it goes on to give details about how um, the author agrees to provide at least a minimum of six thousand names and addresses for individual orders and at least ninety names and addresses for the remaining five thousand bulk orders. Please note that it is important that uh, the makeup of the six thousand individual orders include at least one thousand different addresses with no more than three hundred and fifty per state. so they got this broken out by state and you know, figure out how to, uh, how to how to do this. This is totally rigging the system. This is not, and by the way, you can find this at Warren Throckmorton's website. I'll put the link up uh, to the World Magazine website as well as uh, Warren Throckmorton's uh, 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 article, which actually has uh, scans of this contract between uh, Mars Hill and RSI. And I mean, this, this is just flat out dishonesty. This is not marketing. This is creating the impression and a false impression that that there's this groundswell of people purchasing this book so much so that it made the New York Times bestseller list but this is just an elaborate and extremely expensive scheme okay outlining the fact that oh we've got thousands of different purchasing names and we need all these different addresses from you in order to make this all happen and then you know with the money you know they go out and what do they do with all these books that they purchased where do they go you know, I mean, it was very expensive for them to do this. And so to give us kind of the uh, the final shot as to why this is all wrong, uh, from the Gospel Coalition website, Jared Wilson has a blog post entitled, What's Wrong With Buying Your Way Onto the Best Seller List? Here's what Jared Wilson says. What's wrong with buying your way onto the New York Times bestseller list? Number one, it's dishonest. No, it's not illegal, But neither are lots of unethical, dishonest things. The assumption that people make when they see bestseller labeled on a book or 600,000 followers on your Twitter page is that you came by those accomplishments the straightforward way, attracting or impressing enough readers to merit their attention. Many, quote, bestseller lists are assembled in such a way to prevent certain gamings of the system. It may not be a crime to figure out the workarounds, but it's certainly against the rules, the spirit of the lists, and the expectations of those who respect the lists. Exploiting the loopholes is a patently deceptive practice. Some may ask what the, dif- uh, what the difference is between this practice and paying for an ad, but the difference should be obvious. When people see an ad... They know it was paid for by the writer, publisher, marketer. But when the people see a book make a bestseller list, they assume it was paid for by readers. That the net effect may be the same influence doesn't justify non-transparent means. Number two, it's egocentric and it's lazy. Rather than actually write A strong book or assemble a steady body of social media work that people find valuable over time, rather than putting in the actual time and investing the relational capital necessary to build a genuine audience, one opts to leverage one commodity, money, for another. Power And while some may say the system gaming strategy is a simple way to get the gospel into the maximum number of hands, others of us would suggest that the efforts to gin up an insta-hit indicate it's not so much the gospel that needs a bestseller as an antsy writer who needs one. 3 it may eventually harm your reputation and will bug you in the long run it may harm your reputation when people find out that'll stink then you'll spend more time defending yourself or uh, or owning up to your shadiness than you will enjoying your success and lever- leveraging your influence for Christ's fame number 4 it's poor stewardship and a bad strategy Okay, so let's say you're just trying to promote the book. Notice the air quotes there. Wouldn't it have been more efficient to simply pay the same amount for advertise, an advertising blitz in, in, you know in key publications? Let's say that you are really trying to reach people with the gospel. Wouldn't investing the same amount in an actual ministry endeavor, supporting a missionary, funding a church, plant, etc., be money better spent? If you're simply trying to expand the audience of the gospel or your gospel teaching material— Wouldn't it be more effective to simply purchase thousands of copies of your book and give them away to lost people, or alternatively, not to sell your book at all and give it away for free? Did Keith Green make any bestseller lists? Has John Piper? No. As a ministry maneuver, system gaming works against its purported aim because it's not transparent, but it also seems uh, too complicated and inefficient to effectively accomplish what it means. And number five, it disadvantages those actually gifted. This is a subtle point, but I think an important one. Some people take years to gather thousands of blog readers or Twitter followers by consistently putting out quality content over time and earning readers' trust, and therefore the widening influence this affords. Then someone comes along and buys twice as many fake followers. You make this – you you make – You may call this sour grapes on the part of the guy who came by his readers honestly, but I think he'd have a genuine grievance about the buyer's inadvertent cheapening of the earner's efforts and influence. There's more I could say here from from, uh – jared wilson but you get the point it's dishonest it's egocentric and lazy may actually harm your reputation it's poor stewardship two hundred and ten thousand dollars two hundred and ten thousand to buy your way onto a list and it disadvantages those actually gifted i think uh, jared wilson has some great points and i think that's exactly what's wrong with what mark driscoll is doing and it's really starting to bug me that it's it's scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal with Mark Driscoll and rather than true christian repentance and behavior that is above reproach over and again with him you know we see instances where his well his actions and behavior have brought him nothing but Reproach. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Sermon review from CB Glades, uh, David Hughes. Don't want to miss it. It's all about improving your selfie. That's the name of the sermon series. No joke. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
4: Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
0: Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some. <laughs> <laughs> two of Fighting for the Faith. We're well into it here. Sermon review time. Heading back
5: down to Church by the Glades.
0: The Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith for an Equal Opportunity Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's sermon comes to us via Church by the Glades, Coral Springs, Florida. <clears throat> David Hughes presiding. The name of the sermon series is Improve Your Selfie. I mean, already this doesn't even sound like a Christian sermon. And the uh, sermon itself from the series is entitled Your potential is too great to miss. talk about narcissistic, man. In fact, I don't have anything else to tell you except for maybe we should just get into it. I mean, the title already has red flags flying in my mind, and it should have them flying in yours as well. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here's David Hughes and Improve Your Selfie. Your potential is too great to miss. Oh, man. Talking about scratching, itching ears. Here we go. The series today talking about self-improvement.
6: Self-improvement. Anybody got at least one area of your life, you need to get a little better. And that would be all of us, right? Does the Bible teach self-improvement? Some, some area of your life you want to grow, you want to, want to change, you, you want to get healthier, right? Here's what this is for. I want you to write it down. I want you write down that one thing, maybe two things max. But write down, because I want this to be really specific and encouraging and powerful. Because we want to see God transform our lives in an authentic way. Use code if you need to. If you're worried that someone's going to see what you're writing, use code. You know, right? with exclamation points and hashtags or whatever. Just But everybody do this. Everyone please do this right now. Write down one area where you want to change or you want to grow. You've made a resolution perhaps. Go ahead and do that. All three campuses, write that down. Write that down. And then... So this is really something, hopefully helpful. On the flip side, because life always has a flip side, doesn't it? On the flip side, write down the reason why you've not had success or victory in this area of your life in the past. So my guess is this is not the, first, not the first time you're thinking about this area or, or you, th- you, know, you prayed that God would help you change this area. You've probably tried before and you've not known the kind of success you hoped for. So write down the reason why. What is the, the roadblock in your life or what is the excuse? What is the excuse? And I know some people resist that word. Excuse sounds like a negative word. Uh, well, sometimes there are, there are bogus excuses, lame excuses. But Other times excuses are substantial. They're credible. There's an authentic reason why, an excuse. So write down what you want to change and then the excuse on this side. And then hang on to this. Don't lose this. And here's the one big idea today. It's a one-point sermon. I wrote this down. And by the way, this is not a Bible verse. I I found this on Instagram. I don't remember who posted it, but I wrote it down when I saw it. Here's where it says, I found my results when I lost my excuses. Isn't
0: that good? You found it on Instagram. Was it a photograph from a fortune cookie? Um, Okay, so let me see if I got this straight. This is all about self-improvement. You said that. Um, And your one point is you didn't find it in the Bible. You found it on Instagram. And my question is, was it a photograph of a fortune cookie? Good and that good. In fact, I'm gonna read that together. When I say three. Let's read together. Ready? One, two, three. I fail my. Res- You're having the people in your church read this all together, a one-point sermon with the main point coming from something you found on Instagram rather than the Bible. When I.
6: That's just really good. That's a good idea. And that's that's not a Bible verse, but I think that's a consistent idea with Scripture because we all tend to make excuses sometimes and we back away from a challenge or sometimes, sadly, we miss a brief limited window of opportunity. And so that's the big idea. And there's a passage in Scripture. It's Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Let's say that together loudly too. Luke chapter 14. Come on louder. Luke chapter 14. Turn there in your text quickly. to be on the screen. And Jesus tells a story. And I love me a good Jesus story. Amen? I love when Jesus kind of busts out a parable. And this is a parable. Now, are you going to teach the whole parable? Christ. He says in response to a guy's comment at dinner. Verse 15, chapter 14, Gospel of Luke. When one of those at the table said to Jesus and heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. To which Jesus said, Hmm... He replied, a a certain man was preparing a great banquet. I I like that. The banquet's analogy for a gathering of God's people. And I like that Jesus says it's a banquet. He doesn't say, and a certain guy put on like a little simple supper. It was a little humble, holy, happy meal. No, it's a banquet. What is a banquet? A banquet is a beautiful blend between a meal and, and a celebration. Now, Church by the Glaze, we serve up a meal every weekend. I don't don't mean we give you you calories. We give you the meat of God's Word. The Bible self-defines, the gospel is meat, and then Jesus calls himself the bread of life. So every time we gather up at this church, we serve up the meat of Scripture and the bread of life, which is Jesus. But rather than telling us what you think you do, why don't you just do it? It's not just a simple meal. Here it's a banquet. What's a banquet? Is you celebrate. You have some creativity. It's pleasing to the eye and the palate. So, guess what? Every weekend it's a righteous banquet. It is fun. It's energizing. Amen. Amen. Don't just sit there on your hands. at moments almost like that. It's when you, yeah,
0: it's fun. Our church is not your normal church. We're a wild, weird church because we believe it should be a banquet. You're preaching about yourself, and that has nothing to do. Yeah, you know, Jesus talking in this parable in Luke 14 about a banquet has nothing to do with you as a church offering up a banquet of weirdness. Not a little quiet, boring, predictable, same old, same old meal.
6: It's a banquet. Thank you. One. Woo. I'll take the one. Woo. Thank you. Woo. Woo. It continues. Too late. Too late over there. You try, but too late. At the time of the banquet, verse 17, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all, read this word. Oh, verse 18. But they all alike began to make... (laughs) <laughs> excuses. All right. Make excuses. Uh, wow. Wow. Uh, it says, move through the verse. The first said, I've just bought a field and must go and see it. Not very smart to buy a field you've never laid eyes on. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. I hadn't even tried them out, but he bought them. The third guy, is, I, I, I said, I just got married, so I can't come. Already pecked and he's a newlywed. The servant came back and reported this to the master about these excuses, and the owner of the house became angry, ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys and the, of the town and bring in the, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. A little later, he says, sir... What you've ordered has been done, but there's still more room. Look at at this. I like verse 23. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and and compel them. Make them come in. Get ready. So that my house will be full. It's the heart of God that his house is full. I mean, the heart of God is for a growing church. He wants a bunch of folks showing up at the banquet. Once upon a time, we were a cute little small church. Now we're a big old holy honking church. No apologies for that. Why? I think God is pleased when the church is growing. God is pleased when the church is crowded. God is pleased when you've got to add new worship services. God likes a little chaos in the parking because God wants his house to be full. The- uh, this isn't about that. God is for the invite. He's always on the invite, always inviting people to his banquet. So, church by the glades, thank you for inviting people. Thank you for filling the house. Let's keep it up because the heart of God wants this house to be full. So, praise God for crowds. And uh, and I, we still got some empty seats, and that's awesome because we got tens of thousands of people within a few miles and hundreds of thousands of people within a 10-mile radius, and God wants his house to be full. But I love this Jesus story. It's a great Jesus story. It's a parable. But the main point of the parable is this. Making excuses can mess you up. Making excuses, even legitimate excuses, you can miss out on incredible God things. Excuses can just jack you. So be careful about
0: even... Let's talk about the excuses that were um, made in this text. All right, let's go back. Uh, Luke chapter 14. Let's take a look at this in context. I'm going to read it from the ESV. I'm going to back up to verse 12 because there's some things in play here um, from the uh, immediate context I think we need to pull in. So here's what it says. He, Jesus, said to the man who had invited him, Jesus was at a banquet, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and, be, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, verse 15. When one of those who reclined at, t- at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, All right, a man once gave a great banquet. And invited many. Okay. Now here he, he you gotta decode parables a little bit here. So who do you think the guy is that invited all these people? Who was the guy holding the great banquet? Just keep that in mind, and we'll we'll keep working through the text here. And at that at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, Oh, I've bought a field. I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoken of oxen, and I, and I go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. And then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. This is not church that we're talking about here. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Yikes. Okay, all right. So who's who's the guy here? Probably God. You know, God is the one inviting people, inviting everybody to come. Who are the ones who are making excuses? Probably the Jews, okay, in this context is what we're talking about here. So who then are the everyone else who's being invited? The whole world, the Gentiles being invited in, right? So, um, yeah, there's there's something going on here. This is a parable of judgment, and this isn't about, you know, Having goofy church and having a banquet of silliness in your church, or this is not what this is saying. There to be a credible excuse. See, I found my results
6: when I lost my excuses. Stay with me: I found my results when I lost my. That's good. It's a one-point sermon. Don't miss the one point in the one-point sermon. I, I want to lose those excuses because I want some righteous results of God in my life. So here's what I want to do in the next like 20 minutes: is simply this. Uh, I just wrote down on some of these cards what are some of those common excuses out there. want to walk these through these, and maybe this is your excuse, maybe it 's not, but deal with these kind of one by one. like I wrote down first just simply what I want to call the the information excuse. the info excuse kind of goes like this well i can 't know victory i can 't know advancement i won 't get ahead of my career or whatever because i there 's this necessary information I do not possess I, I, I um. I didn't get my degree or I didn't finish my degree. I, I, I don't know certain things and I, I just don't know these things. If I knew more stuff, if I had just more knowledge, if I was a little smarter perhaps, I, I would get the job done. But I, I don't have that. It's a lack of information excuse. Now, this is a real issue. It's a real issue. But is this justification for not reaching that goal? I would say no. The Bible celebrates knowledge and wisdom and we live in the information age so if you lack some information, I would just simply say in Jesus' name, go get yourself that information. Right. Here's gonna be the, the takeaway for somebody today. You're gonna to go back and finish your degree, or you're gonna start your degree. And I don't mean you have to pick
0: up your family and move to Nebraska. Yeah, Luke fourteen in this parable has nothing to do with you making excuses about finishing your education or the you know, stop making excuses, go find out what you you know, get the information you need in order to lose weight. You are completely abusing this text. This, this is textual harassment that we're hearing from John, uh, Sorry, David Hughes. Go to school. I just mean you're going to go
6: online, get online education, right? We live in the information age. You need to get yourself the information, and God will leverage the information to bring the success you want. Man, Go get yourself some knowledge. Amen? Amen. There's no excuse. It. World Wide Web, man. Go get yourself some knowledge. Go back to How about this? There's some people, like uh, you're a Christian, and maybe you got saved a little later, and you're thinking, oh, man, the Bible. I'll just never figure out the Bible. Man, the Bible's a big old fat book, and all those little books, and the big book, and I know I should be reading the Bible, Pastor. I should be studying the Bible. I should be memorizing. I just can't do that. It's, just, uh, it's so intimidating. Memorize Scripture? Oh, I... I I don't have a very
0: good memory. I don't have, that's the excuse I hear. I don't have a, I should. Yeah, I agree that the people there at CB Glades should dig into God's word and really learn it. Because as soon as they do that, they'll realize that uh, David Hughes is twisting it.
6: As I know, but I don't have, let's just survey that. Anybody here in this campus, you have naturally just a pretty good, to God's glory, you have a pretty good memory. Raise your hand. Anybody you got? That's like, like six people. Awesome. On the other hand, a lot of us, we would say, I don't really have a great memory. Maybe when I was younger, I had one, but I don't. Guess what? That, I think, is probably not a substantial excuse for
0: most of us. Maybe memorization is not as easy as it once was or whatever. But Yeah, let me read to you Kretzmann's popular commentary on what this parable means. I think it's worth uh, taking a look at. Uh, Dr. Paul Kretzmann, a long time ago, wrote... The meaning of the parable in the light of the New Testament fulfillment is clear. The master of the house is God himself, the Almighty, but also in gracious and merciful Lord. The preaching of Christ is the great and glorious banquet or supper... Which he asks guests in order to sanctify them. The food to be provided was thus the gospel with all of its glories, yea, Christ himself, complete justification and forgiveness of sins, life and salvation. And when uh, Jesus came into the world, the hour of the great supper had come. He himself is the servant. Of the Lord in the most exclusive sense, personally, though his, uh, through his herald John the Baptist and through the apostles, he repeated the invitation which has been issued through the prophets that the time has come to which all the patriarchs and the prophet had looked forward to, that the kingdom of God had come near to them. Christ went to the children of the house of Israel for them. His personal ministry was intended. They were chosen people of God. To them and to their children was promised. Uh, what uh, the the promise was published first, and also Christ's journey. Back and forth through the length and breadth of the country of the Jews, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The apostles followed up his work proclaiming the gospel to the Jews first, but Israel as a whole wanted nothing of the glorious news pertaining to their salvation. They refused the invitation. Their minds were centered in earthly things. They expected a temporal kingdom of the Messiah, and their leaders, having a show of sanctity, used this as a cloak for their covetousness and their seeking for pleasure. They despised and rejected the gospel of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Then God, in his anger, turned from them. Jesus sought the poor and the unknown among the Jewish people, those who were spiritually sick um, uh, you know, and blind, He called the publicans and the sinners to him and assured them that salvation was theirs. Poor fishermen, former publicans, reformed sinners were the members of Christ's flock. And finally, Jesus, through his apostles and other messengers, brought the invitation of God out into the world of the Gentiles that were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. From all the nations of the world, the Lord is calling men to his great supper that they may receive the fullness of his goodness and mercy. He is calling urgently and pleadingly. His call is sincere and powerful. He prepares the way for the preaching of the gospel by the proclamation of the law that the sinner may learn to know his helplessness and rely upon the righteousness of the Redeemer all alone. That is what it means to compel if we fear the wrath of God and desire help from him. If that has, uh, has been accomplished through the preaching, the hearts are broken and terrified. Then the preaching is continued in the words, "Dear person, do not despair, though thou art a sinner and hast such a terrible condemnation upon thee. Rather do this: thou art baptized. Now hear the gospel. There thou wilt learn Jesus Christ died for thy sake and has made sanct, uh, satisfaction for your sins." Yeah, see, this that's a great, you know, interpretation and decoding of that parable. Is that what David Hughes is doing with this parable? Not at all. I mean, it's like he's completely ignoring what this parable actually is talking about and what it means in light of the New Testament. You memorize all kinds of stuff you value.
6: Can I make my case? Yeah. When, I, when, I, um, when I say three, I want you to give me your present address or, or homestead, your prior address. Give me your address um, out loud. Out loud. I want the whole thing. I want the street all the way down to the zip code of where you live right now. My guess is you have memorized it. Ready? One, two, three, go. Some of y'all, that's a long name, but you know it. You memorize it. How about this? Can you go back in your memory to your address as a kid? Yeah, wait, when I say three, one, two, three, go. 1921 North 53rd Avenue, Hollywood, Florida. Three three zero two one, if I recall correctly. All right, how about this? How about this? Uh, your current phone number or your most recent phone number? Uh, when I say three loudly, give me your number. Ready? One, two, three, go. Awesome. Now listen, listen. For some smart single guy, that was a moment for you. You should have wrote down those digits. Hit her up. Hey, I said, knew you in church. Hey. All right, ready, ready, ready. How about this? How about this one? Even more random numbers. Ready? When I say three, I want your social security number. Ready? One, two, three, go. Your credit card number. Now don't give those out. Don't give it. But a lot of us, you could do those numbers from what? Memory. I can do my social from memory. My wife can do the social and sadly the credit card number from memory. All right. So we we memorize things that matter to us. In fact, sports fans, there's a little football game this weekend, a little football game you're aware of. When I say three, when I say three, loudly shout out the name of the winning team. Ready? One, two, three. Some of you are right. Some of you are not. All right, sis. So um, all right, if you're a sports fan, sports fans say, I, I can't memorize the Bible. I can't study the Bible. Yeah, you know. Every player's name, their number, their stats on your favorite sports team. Why is that? Because you value that. Uh, It's amazing how sports fans can do that. In fact, I found an example this week. This this is going to blow your mind. Check out this person's memory. Seattle used to
7: be famous for two things, coffee and computers. But these days, Seattle has become nirvana for something else. Football. So who's the most knowledgeable Seahawks fan? Who? Is it this guy? Who's the punter? I don't know. Is it this woman? Who's the head coach?
5: Who? How would I know? I'm a girl. Come on.
7: What about her? Who's the quarterback? I don't
5: know.
7: What about him? Who's the long snapper?
5: Who cares?
7: <laughs> Maybe we need somebody more qualified. Perhaps ESPN's professor of football, John Clayton. He lives in Seattle. Who wears number 68? 68. You know, I think there's a person who knows that a little better than me. <laughs> Could it be that the most knowledgeable football fan in Seattle is barely bigger than the football itself? What's Marshawn Lynch's nickname? Big
5: Mode.
7: Who's the kicker? He won Who's the right tackle?
5: Brando, dog, uh. <laughs>
7: You've heard of the 12th man, right? But have you heard of the 12th toddler? Her name is Callie Butos. She's three years old, loves Mickey Mouse, and can name you most any player on the Seahawks roster. And their jersey number. And their position.
1: Hey, what's Wilson?
7: <laughs> what number is he? This all started as a nighttime tradition between Callie and her sheriff's deputy father before he went off to work the graveyard ship. Who's the
0: special team? Does this have anything to do with Luke chapter 14 and the parable that he just read?
5: Mm -hmm.
0: I thought, let's see if she can memorize some Seahawks players. And it kind of turned into a bedtime ritual. What number is Percy Harvin? I love
2: him.
7: So instead of reading her Goldilocks, you're asking about Golden Tate. I am asking about Golden Tate. She loves Golden Tate. She made up a little cheer about Golden Tate.
5: and Golden Tate.
7: Actually, it doesn't stop with the Seahawks. Who are the bad guys? The
5: 49
7: <laughs> Do you like Drew Brees, the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints? No, he's
5: a bad guy, too. Yeah. She's not necessarily the
1: girly girl I had imagined, but she's really cute in her Seahawks jersey and her
7: little too. Like any little girl, she likes to play with dolls.
5: What do women and what, and women do?
7: And yet, for all her expertise, Callie has never been to a Seahawks game or a Seahawks practice. But she needs to. She has questions, especially for quarterback Russell Wilson.
2: She knows that he works really hard, so she's convinced that he has like really stinky feet, and she just really wants to ask him about it.
6: So we took her. How are
0: you doing?
5: Good. Do you have stinky feet?
0: Do I have stinky feet? Sometimes I got stinky feet.
5: (laughs) That's funny.
0: Who are my receivers? You know?
5: Golden Kate, Cindy, what she holds with dead ball dick. I look
6: at her. She knows the whole roster. (laughs) You're going to be a GM or owner one day,
7: aren't you? Yeah. If that doesn't work, a coach's assistant? Hi, Kelly.
5: Be oh How are you? Good. Nice to see you.
1: Who's going to be our running back this week?
5: Michael Lynch.
1: Yeah, do you know who's going to be his fullback?
5: Yeah. yeah. Michael Robinson.
1: Who are our linebackers?
5: Bobby Springer, Luthor, yeah. and K.J. Watt.
0: <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> no. Yeah, this is really cute and all, but... Um, all the time playing this cute video uh, means less time actually hearing and understanding God's word.
7: Any idea what she might end up in life? She's going to work for ESPN. Right <laughs> after ESPN comes, they're going to be like, oh, we'll, we'll just sign you to a futures contract. <laughs> Please don't have her take my job. Uh, I can't make any promises. Uh, this story just stopped being so cute. Pretty soon, though, Callie might have some Competition of her own. Her younger brother eats this stuff up. But for now, a little kid remains the biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs>
6: That's impressive. Man, she has memorized so much. Now, somebody, you're excusing yourself. But, yeah, but she's a kid, and little kids, and their minds are so nimble; they learn so quickly. Yeah, but listen. Well, What is the attention span of a three-year-old? Very, very short. So here's what I would do. Here's maybe an action step for you. You want to learn the Bible. uh, Do what she did every night as a ritual. Her and her dad sat down. They spent how much time? Probably not a lot because she was three. But if you would take maybe 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes with your heavenly father and read through the small books in the big book. You start reading the Bible as a ritual. You'd be amazed at how much vital God information you'll begin
0: to download. I, again, i got to say, you know, I hope the people there at Church by the Glades take them up on this because as soon as they really become familiar with what God's Word really says, they will realize that he's a Bible twister and he's not a faithful preacher.
6: ...of our excuses. I, I, I found my results when I lost my excuses get that information you need how about this one quickly uh kind of related the i'm not qualified excuse i'm not qualified i like to know advancement more success i'd like
0: to do this or that but i don't think i have the proper yeah how does the i'm not qualified excuse fit in with the actual parable and what it means that you read there
6: i lack the necessary experience i'm not qualified did you miss the point of the parable The kind of worthy people, the moneyed people, the powerful people, the people that others might deem worthy or qualified, disqualified themselves from the banquet by making excuses. On the other hand, the people who received the invitation were the marginalized people, people not thought to be on the typical guest list, but they were actually qualified. They were engaged, invited, valued, fed, and celebrated. Don't let this one hang in your heart. So we, we said goodbye to my dad this week. My dad used to sit in that chair right there by Cameron Wake, right, right by you, Cameron, right there. My dad sat there uh, faithfully every Saturday night, and he would come with my mom as well to the classic service on Sunday morning. They did two services every single weekend, and he would do all the services if I said nice things about him. But the cool thing about my dad was this. My dad constantly served in the life of the church. Now, my dad did not grow up in a Christian family. He blessed me. I grew up in a church-going Christian family. We that like, go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, old school
0: family. But Dad didn't have that advantage. Dad- you know, David, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. I really am. And it's it, I clearly, it is terrible that you lost your dad. But you're not actually faithfully preaching this parable and what it really means. You're twisting God's word.
6: Give his heart to Christ until he was late 20s. As a grown-up, mom grew up in a Christian family, so mom knew way more about the Bible and God than dad did. But dad never used that for an excuse. And growing up, I remember my dad leading the charge to church. And my dad's not a pastor. My dad didn't go to seminary. My dad doesn't have a college degree. He was a hard-working, blue-collar, Eastern Airlines guy who led his kids to the house of God. and did not let the barrier or the excuse that his, his wife knew more ever stop him. He never had any kind of award or accolade at our home church. Never was elected a deacon, kind of a popularity contest. Why? He never worked with grown-ups. He taught kids. My mom and dad taught the boys fourth grade Sunday school class. That's a great thing for a new Christian. You stay one story ahead of the kids. And that's what my dad did. And he worked with the RAs, the Baptist Boy Scouts. He started the basketball league to reach teenagers. And my dad was not a basketball player or administrator. He was a baseball guy. But but man, he and he worked hard. He worked a bunch of overtimes. He had kids going off to college. And my dad coached my little leagues, yet he always led us to church. Never made that excuse. He wasn't qualified. And here in this church at the end in his 80s, my dad didn't just surf the wake that he was the preacher's father. My dad did hospital visits and made a plethora of phone calls to sick people and shut-ins and wrote hundreds of notes to encourage people. And he served the day he died. I went to see dad last Saturday. I walked up to his cubicle and he was working over the therapist, inviting them to church by the glades. And I'm not telling you any of that stuff to brag on my dad. I'm not above bragging on my dad. I'm just here to tell you this. This past Sunday morning, we lost one of our best. We lost Charlie Hughes. I'm here to ask you, who's going to take his place? <laughs> Brothers, there's somebody, and maybe you're here. Maybe, maybe you're a guy. Maybe you're a guy. Maybe you're a married guy at the family, and you work hard, and you work overtime. And you think, I work too much to do anything except show up at church and... Or maybe you, you coach Little League, and that's great and beautiful. That's not the same thing as serving the house of God. Maybe she got saved before you, and you don't know as much Bible as your wife. But my dad didn't just show up. He stepped up and he served. And I really am believing that somebody here is the next Charlie Hughes. We need you. We need you. We need you. I, I don't need you to clap. Thanks for the clap. I, I need you to go out to the lobby, and there's volunteer stations and volunteer. And but I need to go home and pray about it. No, you don't. I prayed for you. You need to do what the Bible clearly teaches and use your gifts and serve. Maybe you take care of kids, or maybe Dad liked to set up chairs at our church. We did church in, in the, the gymnasium, he'd set up chairs. Maybe you come set up technologies, or maybe you work with teenagers, or maybe you visit hospitals. There's something you can do. And, bro, I know you're busy, but I need the next Charlie Hughes, and I think it's you, and that's the highest compliment I can pay you in this sad season of my life. I need you to be like my dad. Don't just talk, God, with your kids. Lead them to the house and show what it means to be selfless and serve. Amen? Turn your neighbor right now. Turn your neighbor right now and say, you might be the next Charlie Hughes. You may be the next
0: Charlie Hughes. You're more qualified than you know. You're preaching your dad rather than Christ. Guess what? Being
6: qualified is overrated. God in the Bible does not call the qualified, he qualifies the call. God in the Bible does not call the equipped, he equips the called. God in the Bible does not call the empowered, he empowers though he calls. Say yes to the call of God. Say, here I am, Lord, send me. Watch what God does in your life. Third excuse is the limitation excuse. The limitation excuse. I have something in my life, a negative reality in my life. This is not something you've imagined
0: Yeah, again, this has nothing whatsoever to do with the parable that you read. What was the point of reading the parable if you're not going to actually teach the text and what it really means?
6: Very real. Uh, It's in my background. It's a disadvantage in my life. It's maybe even something, a disability. And I I will never know victory. I will never know success. I won't reach these goals. I'll never amount to whatever because of this very real limitation. Now, that is you. I, I, man... I want to be very compassionate and very sympathetic, and and I, I man, bless you what you're going through and what you battle with maybe every single day of your life. But though your limitation is real, is your limitation justification for not being and doing everything that God wants you to be and do? In fact, I read the Bible, God does amazing, limitless things with limited people. In fact, did you check out when, like, all the people that had it all together? Because God occasionally chooses and uses, like, a smart, rich person that has it all together, like like twice that happens in the Bible. But often they miss out, like these people missed out. And God will go choose someone we might write off, a marginalized person. Did you see who actually attended the party? The guest list, verse 21, mentions the people who actually said yes. They were limited people, people with valid excuses for not getting there. And it says the owner, in a parallel passage, another parable, he's a king. So the king is throwing this big party or banquet, ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in, look, look, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. If anybody had justification or a valid excuse for not getting to the banquet, it's these people. But they got there. Somehow they managed to get there. They recognized an invitation for a great king is something you don't pass up so you get there. The poor guy, they go, well, I would come, but I'm poor. I'm so poor, I can't get there. I, I can't afford a car. I can't afford me a, a motorcycle. I can't afford me a moped. I can't afford a skateboard. I, I can't afford bus fare. I'm poor. I'll just walk. I'll get myself there. I'll do what it takes. I mean, a blind person has a valid excuse for not getting to the banquet. But the blind person said, this is something too good to pass up. Will you help me get there? I can't see. But if you leave me part of the way, I'll find someone else for after that. I, a, a lame person, a crippled person. Physically impaired. That's a valid excuse. Except this crippled guy said, look, I got an invitation to the king's dinner. I'm going to get there. And I heard about another crippled guy that he got his four friends to carry him to Jesus, and he went through the roof. See, they didn't use their limitations to limit this opportunity. I find in the Bible, God has a beautiful, holy habit of using broken people. It's just maybe you got to frame you know, your life differently. Maybe that limitation... Can limit you or given to God, that limitation, God will leverage to lift you to a new level in your life. Maybe that setback will set you up to see yourself differently. I I think giving that limitation to God for his glory, don't let it be your excuse. Let it be something God pours his power through that becomes a witness to other people. You can do great things and I know, and I know it's real. And I know you deal with this thing every single day of your life, and it, it breaks your heart. And you, you, It's all you can do to get out of bed. You, you just want to quit trying. You, you want to take a knee. You want, you want to give up. You want game over for you. Look, the great ones play until the whistle blows. We're about to see world-class athletes this weekend engage in the biggest sporting event on the planet, Right? They're not just talented people. They're typically very hard-working people. But I love the players that they keep the block, they, they keep hitting until the whistle sounds every single time. The great ones, the champions do that. Champions don't quit. They don't take a knee. Champions don't stop. They play because you don't, you don't stop the play until the whistle blows. And some of the best ones play beyond the whistle. <laughs>
3: They
5: told me I couldn't.
0: And here we go. uh, Another break from, well, you can't really say hearing God's word. Well, another break from an opportunity where people could have actually learned what God's word really says. um, For another Super Bowl related little video. Hmm.
5: That I was a lost cough. I was picked on. And picked last. Coach didn't know how to talk to me. They gave up on me. Told me I should just quit. Don't move, don't move, don't move, don't move. And the last bit is They didn't call my name. Told me it was over. But I've been deaf since I was three, so I didn't listen. And now I'm here with a lot of fans in the NFL cheering me on. And I can hear them all.
0: Have you seen that commercial? There's no. Uh, What does that commercial have to do with the parable that Jesus gave?
6: That's, That's a true story. Derek Coleman is the first legally deaf person to play in the storied history of the NFL on offense. He was not drafted out of college. Uh, He didn't, you know, make it on a pro squad. He tried out for Minnesota his first year. Didn't make the squad, but they put him on the practice team. He got cut from that. He went to the Seahawks. He tried out for the Seahawks. He didn't make their roster, but he made it on the practice team. The next year, he made it on the roster. He played in 12 games this year, scored his first touchdown of his career this year, and today, the first legally deaf offensive player in the NFL history
0: will play in the Super Bowl. And what does that have to do with God calling people to his banquet?
6: a limitation. His ears don't work properly. He'll tell you, guess what? My ears didn't work, but my eyes worked just fine. So I learned to get very proficient at reading lips. I got so good I could read the lips of my coach on the sideline. That's a dicey proposition, by the way. I could read the lips of defenders calling out their plays against me. And because I cannot hear the hut, hut, of the quarterback, I start every play a fraction of a second late. I can't hear the call. I have to start with my eyes, so I start late. But I also cannot hear the whistle when the play is done. So I play past the whistle, man. I play a little longer and harder than everybody else.
0: Let God... And that has nothing to do with God calling everybody to his banquet.
6: Read your limitation to lift you to a new level. And then finally, somebody here, and you say, uh, "David, my, my deal is uh, it's my yesterday, it's my past, it's uh, a mistake I made, or a
0: bunch of mistakes I made, and they were they're called sins, and I'm I'm forever stained by this." Do I detect a gospel nugget coming?
6: So we start a new series next week. It'll be really cool and very vital. You're here. It's called Believe. It's about lies. See, the devil is the father of all lies. And a lot of us don't even know we bought into some of his devilish deceptions. And, and, and he, he's holding us back. And he's
0: All right, you're right. The devil is the father of all lies. Since you're not saying the truth and you're lying about what this parable means, who then is the origin of this interpretation of the parable that you're giving us?
6: And he's so proficient at lying, the Bible says it's, it's his native tongue. He lies all the time, and he's so subtle and so deceptive. And one of the titles for Satan in the Bible is this, the accuser of the brethren. Meaning this, he loves to condemn us, loves to accuse us. And typically he used the ammunition of our past mistakes. Because I have been a screw-up in the past. I have been a bonehead in the past. I have done some dumb stuff in the past, and you too. And the devil likes to hold that up and say, how could God use you? How could you ever be blessed? They're called sins, and Christ died for them. How could you ever?
0: Guess what? Pastor Tullian was right. You're probably messier than you know. Is I'm it? glad that you think Tullian is uh, correct here. He did preach at uh, Church by the Glades, I think, right near the end of the year last year. We need Jesus. This might
6: sound like a go home and try harder message. It's not to go home. Well, try harder. Give it your best. But we can't fix
0: ourselves. Jesus died on the cross to fix us. It's all about what Christ has done for us. You re- yeah, you need to elaborate there on what you're talking about because you're not quite using the same biblical language. That you receive salvation. But when you receive that, you receive not just
6: forgiveness, you receive freedom. And my God is bigger than your present. He's bigger than your past. And lo- one thing I love to do whenever the enemy accuses me about my past mistakes make me feel like I'm unworthy for God to use me, I, I just respond to his lies with Scripture. And I love what it says in Romans 8, verse 1. This is a powerful word of truth. When the, yeah, this is a, we've got
0: some gospel in here, which is interesting.
6: Makes you feel unworthy when he reminds you about your past. I and mean, God can never use you, I and mean, you're, you're a loser, you're a screw up. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who go home and try harder. No, that's a great thing to do, but those who find relationship with Christ Jesus. So if you haven't done that, we're almost finished. we
0: got a song, don't you know, you? It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's ellipses there, which mean you're not even giving them the whole passage. I mean, are you running out of time here? Did you not have enough time to actually preach the gospel in its fullness in your sermon? I mean, this is a great gospel passage, and it's like you're only giving them just a tiny little drop of gospel. barely before the song is done. But
6: they don't want to come up and talk to you when the song is done. But after that song, if you've never given your heart to Christ or need to be baptized or whatever, at all the campuses, nice folks, will be at the edge of the stage to help you navigate
0: that. Dis- if you haven't given your heart to Christ, come on up. You know, you know why exactly are they doing that? somebody here, it's
6: about your past. The enemy is holding you hostage in your past. You see, he's trying to build a prison of your past to make you forfeit your future.
0: That is not the gospel. The thing is, is that their past, they're guilty of their sins because they are guilty. That's the reality of it. The only solution is for them to actually be forgiven. The, 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 Christ told us in Luke 24 to proclaim repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. Here, you're just making Satan be like some kind of a liar. Oh, your past is... Da-da. Well, Satan's not lying when he's sitting there accusing of your sins and saying you're guilty. You're He's right, you're guilty in that sense. And Christ forgives us, so we need to repent and be forgiven. And then the devil's silence because Jesus then is the one speaking for us. All of our sins are accounted for and punished in Christ. Therefore, the devil has nothing to leverage against us. He can't accuse us because God's righteousness, righteous judgment has been fulfilled by Christ's substitutionary death for us on the cross. My God is so big and his
6: grace so pervasive that my God wants to redeem your past to redefine your future. So guess what?
0: No, 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 no. no. Christ doesn't redeem your past. He
6: redeems you condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. So pick, a, pick up yourself, dust off your dirt, ask forgiveness, and get busy and build
0: that future that God has for you. And get busy and build the future that God has. What on earth is this? I know, you, but I know this about you. My God loves you and has a plan for your life, and you are a... My God loves you and has a plan for your life. That is not the gospel. Pregnant with possibility... Today I'm pregnant with possibilities. I'm a dude. I hope I'm not pregnant. Is our day in Jesus' name that we're going to take
6: our future back. We're going to take our future back in Jesus' name. Today, we take our future.
0: That's the end of the sermon. Wow. A train wreck with something gospel at the end. That was a mess and rather than clearly preaching the law to condemn us of our sins and then comforting us with the good news that Christ bled and died for that and telling us that we are now set free in Christ from slavery to sin death and the devil to walk in real freedom this message was just a mess yeah and David Hughes, he's one of the big generals of the whole seeker-driven movement, and his church is one of the flagship churches in the seeker-driven movement. And people think that they're learning their Bible, and they're not. But the best advice that he gave in that whole sermon was that people should read their Bible. Yeah, I agree. And when they do that, and they spend 10, 15 minutes a night learning their Bible over a period of time, they'll eventually begin to see, whoa, wait a second, David Hughes doesn't rightly handle God's word and what he's preaching isn't actually what the Bible says. Hi, what a mess. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian.